the flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by North Dakota Tourism, Waltons, Nutrisource, Pet Foods, Aluma Trailers, Federal Ammunition, and by Onyx Hunt. My guests today are Bob St. Pierre and Aaron Sanquist from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Bob and Aaron will help us understand the life of a pheasant from the moment they are a twinkle in their parents' eyes until you're flushing them in front of your bird dog. The more you know about the bird, the more productive hunter you'll ultimately be. At least that's our goal today. It's time to start planning your next bird hunt. If you've listened to this podcast for any time at all, then you know where I'm about to send you. That's to North Dakota. Why? Well, it's one of the greatest places on earth to watch a bird dog in the field. That's why. In North Dakota, you can experience a waterfall hunt during the peak of the fall migration and have the best upland hunt all in the same day. I've done it many times. That's why I know it's true. Plus, this year, the spring pheasant crowing counts were up 30% from last year, and the weather has been looking good for a strong hatch. Water levels are up way up, which means the total number of wetlands are up too, 76% above the long-term average, and that means more ducks and geese. The state's breeding duck index was the 23rd highest on record this year, 39% above the long-term average at 3.4 million. All of this means more pheasants than last year, more ducks than last year, and I'm hearing excellent reports about the sharp-tailed grouse and Hungarian partridge too. Start planning your world-class hunt in North Dakota at hellond.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. Brandon Morton is our producer. Brandon has the day off, but the ship must continue to sail, and so on we go without him. My guests today are Bob St. Pierre and Aaron Sanquist from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Gentlemen, appreciate you coming in today. I'm trying to figure out who's been with the Habitat organization the longest. I know that answer. You do. We're we're like neck I know you're and neck. celebrating 20 years. And so, well, Aaron's uh, same anniversary or roughly. You I know the answer. I started with the organization in August of 2002. Oh, okay. When you did do, you start? You Bob? have me beat. There we go. <laughs> and you know you have me beat. <laughs> January 603. So he's got me beat by about six months. Wow. Congratulations, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> if I if Brandon was here, I'd have him play the. <gasps> <laughs> you know the, the cheer button on it. I don't know how to operate this machine, so we'll just keep. Talking. It is it is a cool testament to the stickiness of the organization because there's four of us: um, Ron Leathers, Tim Corin, Aaron, and I. Just celebrated 20 years, and, and we're like short timers compared to some of the folks there. You know, yeah. you think about Howard Vincent, who just retired. He was there since 1980. Five, I think. Yeah, you Nomsen and Dugan and Rick Young and yeah. I mean, you know, 20, 30 year people and you look around and there's still a lot of folks that, that were there before it. you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Who's the longest tenured, do you know? Matt Holland, probably, huh? Currently. Holland's up there, James Kerber's James up Kerber. there. 
um, you know, the four of us are probably in that next tier somewhere there. Uh, Gail Naden's been longer there, long there longer than me, um, longer than you. Yep, Gail and Aaron Keel has been there a little bit yeah. longer than me as well. So there's a handful. I, I didn't study the baseball cards before coming <laughs> yeah, in, okay. but that, but it is. Yeah. It, I think it's super cool that um, people really stick with the organization, and there's just not a lot of turnover because it's you kind of get in and you really believe in the mission, and you see a collective group of people working mm-hmm. hard for that mission. I mean, it's not Nerf World and candy canes every day. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> but, but you have I this drop f bombs with the rest of them when I have a bad day. But it Do is. Do you throw stuff? Um, yeah, I, I I can't golf anymore because I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a. Have you watched episode f- or the full swing series on Netflix by chance? No, no, it's... I completely like gave up on golf after because <laughs> uh, my temper just like I just throw sh- stuff um, you don't so we should golf person. together the point I've never is, seen you throw your gun when you miss them no there's a little bit different than a golf club but yeah. the point is, I mean I have bad days like everybody like uh, you know when we were in the office I'd have to just leave the office and take a walk around the building you know again it's not Nerf World but the overall like passion for the mission, the success of the organization mm-hmm. keeps you coming back. It's like, we have to win. We have to uh, achieve this Habitat mission. I, it, it's part of the fabric of who we are. I mean, I know you feel the same way. And it's like, it's part of your, our identity is, is going to work and being the, you know, Pheasants Forever employee. And, and in addition to that, Bob, um, you know, just I've had the privilege of working in many different uh, uh capacities here at the organization, you get to see the benefits of your work on the landscape immediately. I mean, pheasants are highly reproductive. We're going to talk about that. But I mean, mm-hmm. you get to see a project and then you get to see the benefit of that project real quick. And so there's a there's an extreme amount of satisfaction that it comes with this job and at every level of the organization. What makes you wish you had a punching bag in the <laughs> office? Like what, what happens there that you're like, oh, beep, come beep, on, are we really going to get it? <laughs> and you get just, it, you, it makes can, you want to scream. It's like every, every job, like any, yeah, I worked in baseball before, right? Yep. And also a dream job, but there are things that make you go bonkers. And some of it is people, right? It, it, you know, we are not all cut the same. And, there's conflict, right? Some of it is what happens in Washington, D.C., and you want the mission, for everybody to see the benefits of your Habitat mission, and when others put different priorities higher, yeah, I want to go off. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can, it can be all sorts. Of, it's, it's human nature stuff, you know? But at the end of the day, the, the positives far, far, I mean, 20 years, yeah. right? They far outweigh. I've had other opportunities to get back into sports. And, and I remain in love with what I do and very passionate about the success. Well, I'm so glad you're there because I, you know, kind of feel like I've just enjoyed your journey in this space for so long. And I'm glad that. I can call you up and we can brainstorm <clears throat> and just have conversations about life too. And that just comes from time spent together. And then every once in a while we get to jump into the <laughs> field or the woods together too. We did it a couple right. times last year. Love that. Um, but Likewise. Um, 
because you know this you know, I mentioned like the people king sometimes drive you crazy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Well the people also keep you there because you know being able to work with people like you, you know, not Aaron, but me. Honestly, you know, I, I have great <laughs> friendships laughing. with with Aaron too. You know, I, um, you know, we we work together frequently in the organization. But we also like Aaron is a uh, his wife is a president of a chapter, right? County Pheasants Forever, and Aaron, you're like the de facto secretary, right? And I, I've emceed their banquet. Um, I don't know, ten times probably just. It's like we have a friendship because, again, I, you know, like-minded. He's a Brittany guy. We won't hold that against Ooh, them. Well, um, that changes things. <laughs> but I have a lot of Brittany friends. My yeah. parents, Billy Hildebrand, right? right? There um, are a lot of Britneys in your of, world. There are. Yeah. There, there's a reason for that, gentlemen, okay? There's a reason there's a lot of fans. <laughs> but, hey, I'm dying to go back to one thing. Yeah. Who's the better shot between you two? You've been uh, in the field Travis. together. No Travis? Yeah. Oh, I don't know if I'm I a streaky that. hitter. <clears throat> but when Bob's streaking, he's... <laughs> Do you remember uh, Vinny the Microwave Johnson? No? <laughs> That's a Detroit Pistons reference okay. from, so, from the Bad Boys era. So after we're done here, if you want to stick around, we're going to go and watch an episode that Bob and I filmed together that's going to air in a couple weeks on the uh, on the Flush. And it's our hunt together with um, Dave Simonette mm-hmm. from Trampled by Turtles. But we spent a couple days in the Northwoods in Wisconsin grouse hunting, and then we also went pheasant hunting. And... You'll see who's the better shot. We'll just say that. <laughs> uh, well, I had a good day pheasant hunting. I remember that. You did. Um, Excellent day. I don't think you missed. I may, maybe didn't miss, but I missed uh, a few grouse and woodcock. But yep. who doesn't? Right? Exactly. We all <laughs> there were did. leaves. Uh, that yeah. it was a beautiful, like perfect time of year, color wise too. We can relate to each other, Aaron, very well because we both go through those streaky moments, <laughs> and then when one of us is down, the other one usually is up. And vice versa. And so we balance each other out. And it's, yeah, I think we're both at a point where it's like, eh, I don't really care anymore. Yeah. You know, like my dog did well. Yeah. You know, I, there'll be others. You know, it's like I got, I have that veteran baseball mentality now. It's like, let it, you know, that strikeout roll off your back. I'll, I'll get that picture next time. One thing that about, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that, that's critically important. Yes. And we share. This same really deep love for hunting grouse and woodcock. And, yeah. Like, I just, that's the first bird I ever hunted. If I could only hunt one bird, I mean, as much as I would like to say pheasant, I think it would be rough grouse. There's just something about that bird. I love that bird. And I love Hungarian partridge, too. <laughs> I like sharp-tailed grouse. Okay, I like a lot of them, but I love... Merns. Merns. Gambles. <clears throat> Man, okay. I like them all. I love <laughs> them all, <laughs> and I really enjoy time in the woods. Aaron, um, every time I talk to you, you've got a different title. So what is your working <laughs> title right now it's with BF ca- and QF? It's kind of a mouthful, but it I am is. the conservation delivery director for the Midwest region, which is... Uh, say it nine- three times fast. <laughs> no, I have a speech impediment. I cannot say it three times <laughs> fast. <laughs> but it's the nine Midwest states, uh, uh, so... Uh, I'm new to this role. I, I had it. Uh, I, I took this position back in October of 22, so I'm still kind of learning things. But uh, it's been very rewarding and kind of the, the first 20 years with the organization, I've been focused within Minnesota and working on state level stuff. And so now it's been really cool to kind of expand that and see what the other Midwest states have going on and help them uh, meet their challenges and opportunities as well. 
Aaron's like the 18 time defending most valuable employee. Oh, really? Uh, do yeah, you guys like, give out well, those awards? We do. We do. And Aaron's like one of more than anybody. And we're like, finally, like, Aaron, you're epic. I mean, you're doing so many good things. Let's, let's give a little taste of you across the entirety of the festival. Okay, so how do you how do you vote? <laughs> do you like that? That's a, that's a bad visual, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who votes on it, though? Uh, where Aaron goes about, with the awards? No, about who, you know, like, he's got all these trophies in his on his desk, but... Uh, it's a collection of um, nominations come in from the entirety of uh, the employees for some awards. Okay. Uh, we have one called the Jeffrey S. Finden Founders Award. So that is voted. It's a Jeff Finden, the, the founder of the organization, one of the founders of the organization. There's an award that everybody votes on. So that's a real prestigious one, right? Have you ever won it? I have not. I've gotten votes almost every year. Really? Which I'm super Nominations. Proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I have not won it. But um, and then the other awards are kind of nominated up through directors, and um, um, then kind of a, a smaller pool comes to the executive team. So president, CEO, and the, um, the chiefs. And then we vote from, from there. Um, and there's probably, we just got done with awards week, so roughly 12 awards. Um, Who won this year? Most valuable employee, Jordan Martinsich. For, uh, it, for, um, Good for him. You know, Congrats, the culmination Jordan. of the, the Call the Uplands campaign and uh, just phenomenal uh, achievement organization-wide. But, you know, Jordan led that charge for sure. Aaron, does that piss you off? <laughs> <laughs> no, Jordan is long overdue. And, uh, you know, one thing I have to say, because I don't like to talk about myself, but uh, I have been recognized, but, you know, Bob talked about the, the sticky people in this organization earlier. And, you know, a lot of, of the success we've seen in Minnesota has been because of those sticky people, the Dave Nomsons, the Joe Dugans, the Matt Hollands there in Keels and, and the groundwork they've laid. So a lot of my success has just been having a great team in Minnesota and uh, picking up where they left off and, and the, what they've developed and the groundwork they've laid. So, and really excited about what we got in Minnesota now too, for, for the future growth there. And, and those future leaders are doing some great things. Well, we appreciate everything that your entire team is doing. Uh, we're going to get into the biology of birds, everything about the life of a pheasant. That's our conversation today. Um, we set this up a couple weeks ago for you guys to come in here. And then two days ago, you're like, can you give me some talking points? And I don't usually write any questions out. Um, but I, I gave you kind of a rundown of what I was thinking. You go, full disclosure, <laughs> I just released a podcast, or I just recorded a podcast with Ron Leathers for on the Wing podcast yep. about the biology of nesting. nesting and for pheasants and quail. And I said, that's great. Because <laughs> if people want even more information after we're done talking today, I encourage them to go listen to it. I listened to it because it just launched yesterday. Yep. And we're recording this. 223. On we're recording this on July 27th. Like I said, Brandon is not in right now. So I don't know that we can get this one out today or tomorrow. So it might be a couple days. Depending on when you're listening to this podcast, the latest one that Pheasants Forever just released, that Bob just released, is an excellent, excellent listen. You guys did a great job. We're going to um, try to give even more information today. Some of it might be similar in the information about the birds, but we have a different biologist in here, Bob. We do. And Aaron, you get to be a biologist again today. I know you went to school for this, and now you're, you know, like, you're overseeing nine different states, but 
Today, we're going back in the field. Are you ready for this? Back to the basics. I love it. <laughs> All right. So what when you went to school, the biology side of it, what, what originally was your goal there? Did you want to be in the field? Did you want to be working with the land and with the wildlife? Well, um, like most you know, high schoolers and, and folks that are early in college, I really didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, but you probably love to hunt. I, I love to hunt and fish. And despite what my high school counselors told me, um, <laughs> I knew I wanted to, to try to make that my career if I could somehow. And so I guess if I, if I had to say something, uh, when I went to college, I envisioned, you know, probably working for a state DNR or something like that. Uh, I'm an avid fisherman as well. So, I mean, at, the, at that time, it was, you know, something fishing or fisheries or wildlife or wildlife habitat related. And um, when, when I graduated from St. Cloud State uh, University, uh, I think Bob also graduated from St. Cloud I State. Did. But uh, I was just kind of in the right place at the right time. Uh, back in 2002, I graduated in the spring. And then by August of 2002, like I said, uh, Got a job with Pheasants Forever and haven't looked back yet. Did you guys know each other in college? Uh, I'm a few years older than Aaron. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like, you're so you nice. The, <laughs> you see the smile on his face right now? You said you graduated in 02? I graduated in 02. Okay, yep. so I graduated in 96, so we did not overlap at all. Ah, gotcha. So when I went to college up in Bemidji State, hunting was a big reason that I chose that college, hunting and fishing. The campus is on the lake. During the winter months, I didn't park on the road. The, the business building butted up right to the shore, so I just parked my truck right on shore. There's very few camp college campuses <clears throat> in America that you can park your vehicle on a lake and walk into your building, <laughs> being the closest parking lot to your right. building. There were also lockers you could put your hunting gear in, your decoys, a, a cleaning room, shotguns can go in there. I mean, I'm just I'm not trying to encourage people to go to Bemidji State, but <laughs> there's I, a billboard outside <laughs> yes, of Fargo. Exactly. You could park on the lake and go to Bemidji State. <laughs> yes. Did you hunt a lot when you guys went there? I did, yeah. Because you, you grew up just south of there, right? Yeah, I grew up in Delano, Minnesota. Um, and then when going to St. Cloud State, I actually uh, uh, lived in Cold Spring, which is mm. about 15 miles or 15 minutes west of St. Cloud. And, and, you know, got to meet some really cool uh, friends who are still friends to this day that hunted and fished on the Horseshoe Chain of Lakes in that area. And so, yeah, we, we probably spent a little too much time hunting and fishing <laughs> in college. Or maybe Gosh, my grade Aaron, point no average would have been better. <laughs> there's no such thing. I can't trust you for anything else you say this day because of that line. There's no such thing as too much. Now and you it, sound like my wife. <laughs> and I was the exact opposite. I didn't hunt at all um, at St. Cloud. But you got to remember, I'm, you know, I grew up in Michigan. I grew up as a hunter, but you know, figuring out how to bring fishing rods and shotguns to Minnesota by an out-of-state lele, I just I I would hunt when I went back home for breaks or weekends, but I'd never hunted uh, Minnesota till after I graduated. <laughs> I don't even know if I should admit this <laughs> now that we're talking about college stuff, but I used one of the college student loans to help fund some of my fishing because <laughs> I needed to put a little bit of money towards a boat. And in a roundabout way, it all worked itself out. But let's just say that I took out a student loan that helped, you know, my my passion. Roundabout way. In a roundabout yeah. way, yes. So then Sounds how, pretty direct to me. <laughs> yes. I want to know how many fish were caught during class up in Bemidji State. A lot. <laughs> a lot. If only we could do the remote school like we can do now, you know, and have Wi-Fi out there. We did not have that option. All right. Let's get into the biology of birds. Enough about us, right? Okay. So I want to kind of 
I want to kind of take us from through all seasons of a pheasant's life. And I think we should start with where it all begins. Not the birds, <laughs> kind of the birds and the bees here, but uh, we're going to get R-rated right off the bat. Mating season. When does that typically start for pheasants in the Midwest? We'll just say the pheasant belt here. Yeah, and, and, and we're going to have to talk in generalities, you know, because obviously there's a big difference between states and... and but is there a big difference, though? Because I don't think it's that drastic. Well, It might be a few so, days, right? Yeah, days. I mean, like what I would say is, you know, late April or mid-April to mid-May, probably, to your question, um, would be the average, um, understanding that there's a lot of different things that happen you know, in any one localized area and with weather and, and geography that could affect that. Okay. So how many hens can a rooster service here? Well, again, I uh, don't want to give a specific number, but I'd give a range of like, say, five to 20. I thought it was way more than that, Bob. You think it's more than that? Uh, I would probably lean closer to the 20 percent. I would say too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you guys are outvoting me already? No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> armchair biologist <laughs> versus real biologist. We'll go with you. You said 5 to 20. We're just saying, that's ah, probably closer to the 20. What would Matt Morlock say? <laughs> what would Matt Morlock say? Uh, I don't know. Probably closer to the 20. I would say so, too, because every time I talk to him, you know, we agree on this in that, you know, it, there's a lot of value in taking those roosters out late season to make sure the hens come through mm -hmm. the best they possibly can because you're not as concerned about every rooster making it. You're concerned about the hens making it through. Absolutely. Right? And, 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 you know, I, I would also agree that, you know, where in areas localized where the rooster harvest has been better, that number increases. They, they're capable of mating with as many as they need to, but you know, a lot of times in Minnesota too, you're only harvesting 65% of the available roosters. And so in those situations, I don't think they're, they're doing the deed, so to speak, with as many <laughs> hens because there's more roosters available and they establish smaller territories and, and you know, the, there's not as many hens to go around, so to speak. I think there is a statistic too that if, if you carry over, I think it's a 10%, roosters adult carry over through the winter that you have enough roosters to maintain the population of servicing all the hens that is that, correct yep 10% out of from fall carrying through the winter to survive i'm curious in you know in the big game world the bigger dominant males get to breed right they fight and they push the smaller ones away in the pheasant world does that, you know, we see cockfights all the time out there. Do they get to breed the dominant big roosters? You have to remember that an old, wise, dominant rooster may be a year old, so, um, or a year and a half or two years old. You know, pheasants rarely live even three years in the wild. So, um, you know, I'm sure there are pheasants and roosters that are born more aggressive and dominant by nature, but. Um, you know, that all gets sorted out in the territory establishment phase, you know, in that kind of March-April time frame. Short okay. Lived, sh very short-lived birds, right? And same yeah. thing with, um, with quail. You know, I, I've come to call quail nature's chicken nuggets, right? Because they, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, they just turn over. They don't live very long. And that's where, uh, is it R factor, the reproductive um, potential of these upland birds is extremely high, but that's because everything wants to eat them. 
Yeah. They, they have to be re- reproductive, highly reproductive, or they're not going to survive as a species because they're so short-lived. The average life expectancy of a pheasant is, it's not a year, is it? No. Mo- six, is it ma- six months? The majority of pheasants will not live to their first birthday. So, you know, over half or about half. Gotcha. And it's the ones that Bob and I miss that make it to keep the population going. Okay, so we've got the mating is taken care of in April. How long until they start laying their first eggs? Again, it's variable, but you know, generally mid-Mayish, they'll start developing a nest and laying an egg a day. Um, generally, that first nest or that first attempt to nest is about you know, 10 to 15 eggs, uh, we like to say 12 a lot. Um, um, and they'll, so they'll spend about 12 days laying eggs, roughly speaking, and then they'll sit on that nest. One a day. One a day, yep. yep. A- after the, the deed has been done, uh, they'll go off and, and lay their eggs, and they will not start incubating until after they are completed with laying all the eggs they're going to lay in that first uh, nest attempt. So we had this really tough winter, um, and it makes, makes a lot of people wonder, does that delay... The mating does that delay the nesting at all or biologically they've got to do it at a certain time like the rut happens for whitetails whether it's 20 degrees below zero or 50 degrees because there's things happening there's moon phases there's all this stuff happening in a pheasant's world does the weather dictate when they mate when they lay the weather could dictate a little bit of maybe when they mate and initiate nests but the length of the day is when they are laying their eggs. So that's where you probably heard of pheasants being called nest parasites. Um, If a pheasant um, is not ready to initiate her own nest based on weather conditions, but has already done the deed and is laying eggs based on the length of daylight, um, they will dump those eggs either just on the ground into another nest like a duck or or some other uh, pheasant that maybe started earlier and uh, just continue to do that until she is ready to incubate or to start uh, initiating her own nest. Okay. So once they start sitting, it, I think I think I heard it was 23 days of sitting before the f- before the pip, the bird comes out. That's correct. 23 days. And in that process, um, if at any time she's kicked off or the nest gets destroyed, what happens next? She will start her attempt number 2. Finding a new spot. Yep. Making... Re- relocating and starting that whole process over of laying an egg a day um, until she's satisfied. Generally speaking, the second nest, and if there's a, a requirement for a third, those the amount of eggs she will lay in that nest decrease. Um, so it goes from roughly 12, <clears throat> 10 to 15 in that first one. Second time, if it has to happen, is generally going to be how many eggs? Um, well, I'd say eight to 10, you know, maybe the third would be six to eight, you know, something like that. So, I mean, again, it's, it's hard to say an exact number because, you know, I've been turkey hunting and I've flushed a hen off multiple times with 18 eggs, uh, on her first attempt. So we say 12 to 15. You can't count that high. Come on. Are you sure? I use my fingers and toes. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Bob, you guys went into this pretty deep Mm -hmm. on your recent show. It's a myth about people thinks the second hatch. Yeah, so a couple of things that I think are really important to recognize. Um, you know, we talk about adult carryover or roosters. What is critically important for what everybody wants to see in August roadside counts and mm-hmm. in front of their shotgun in the fall starts with how um, healthy 
are hens coming into nesting season out of that winter. It's not about roosters at all. So it's about do they have good, secure winter cover to get them through the winter and food. And then they come into nesting season and they can find available habitat that's, you know, greening up early. And then they can start nest nesting. And, and how strong that hen is, how healthy, helps dictate how many eggs they're going to lay. And that first nesting attempt, you can, the numbers are really easy, right? If, if the first nesting attempt, even a non-biologist could get to this right here. <laughs> uh, the first attempt, if they're, you know, they're putting down an average of 12 and they're successful, well, there's 12 new chicks being entered into the system. If a raccoon eats that first group of eggs and they drop down to, say, eight eggs, well, the, the math's real easy. If a, a possum gets that next group of eggs and it drops down to five, well, it's law of diminishing returns. At least... Pheasants are persistent nesters, and they keep trying. They'll try up to three, even if that number's down. Where it's, where people, I think, get confused because you hear this. I, I hear it at the gym. I see it on social media. It's like, what do you think about the se- se- uh, you know possibilities of a second nesting this year, a second clutch, or a second hatch? And I think what people are thinking when they're asking that are that pheasants are going to pull off a second brood of chicks. After raising their first. After raising their first, which definitively does not happen. Biologically, they are not built to make that happen. So when we talk about second nests, it's after they lose that first clutch of eggs. And the other thing we talked very in in depth in the podcast about is, okay, if, if a raccoon eats the eggs, for whatever reason, they lose the eggs the pheasant will re-nest. But if even one of those chicks has hatched out of the eggs, there's a biological switch, a mental switch, call it, you know, changing into mom mode, which how Ron referred to it in our podcast. Like once one chick hatches out of that egg, the opportunity for that hen pheasant to nest again is over. They have completely biologically switched to taking care of their clutch. So now they're really vulnerable. <clears throat> so if that hen were to lose a, um, a brood of chicks, gets hit by a car or a tractor or eaten by, you name the predator, right? And a house cat, feral cats, which are <laughs> much more of a problem than people realize. Oh, for right? sure. Yep. Um, and I think weasels are super high. Mink. Um, right? So there's all sorts of things that want to eat. Let's call them the Midwest chicken nuggets or pheasant <laughs> chicks, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, but the, the point is when a pheasant loses a brood, they are done, Period. They are not going to lay another um, clutch of eggs. They're not going to try to start over again. Their role as mom is over for that year and likely over for their life because they're probably not going to live until the next. It can happen, but it likely, based on averages, they're not going to live to raise another clutch. So, so that's where you, you look at nesting season as being the critical component of how many birds we're going to see mm-hmm. come hunting season. Yeah, I've talked about this several times in the last couple months with people like, oh gosh, the winter was tough. And I'm like, yeah, it was. Um, but there's still a lot of people talking about how many birds are seeing. And you could lose, let's say, f- I mean, 50% winter kill. 
Let's just say that's what happens. Well, those other 50% that survived, if they can each dump 12 birds, you know, like that 50% loss is made up so fast, you know, that you come hunting season might not even realize any of the loss that you incurred during the winter, right? And, and that's where habitat, it comes down to habitat yeah. because we can't control the weather. We're going to have bad winters in the northern part of the range. Um, we're going to have droughts in the southern part and other parts of the range. And if you have quality habitat, both winter cover with food in close proximity and then great nesting and brood rearing covers, pheasants, and because of their reproduction and how highly reproductive they are, can, can rebound very quick to your point. If you're an active outdoorsman or woman on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Well, our friends at Aluma Trailers, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for all of your hauling needs, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow gear like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day, and now that app is available in our vehicles. Yep, Onyx did it. They launched Apple CarPlay. That means when you plug your phone into your vehicle, you now have the option to open up the Onyx app right on the dash of your hunting rig. No more holding your phone while driving, which is obviously dangerous, and you get all of the same layers on your vehicle dash that you get on your phone. You can see the aerial view of your location while driving down the road, just like you'd see if you're using your own maps, apps, Waze, or Google Maps. Except now you can find out if the properties around you are open to the public, the landowner's name that owns the land. And if you're in North Dakota, you can see if that land is posted without even touching your phone. To use this feature, simply make sure your Onyx app is up to date. And if you're not an iPhone user, don't worry. Onyx is currently working on the same platform for Android phones too. Apple CarPlay, the latest incredible feature from Onyx Hunt. Always know where you stand and now where you drive with Onyx Hunt. So the right nesting cover would be more beneficial than even wintering cover, probably. I mean, if you if you had to say, like, what matters the most in a pheasant's world in their life because of the need to successfully reproduce and how quickly they can quadruple or, you know, grow the population with a good hatch. Is it more important that you have nesting habitat than like cattail sloughs? I, I would start out by saying it's debatable, but since I'm here and, and other people aren't, I get to give you my opinion, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, that's how you make it, the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, nesting cover and broodering cover is the limiting factor for the vast majority of the pheasant range. And so, yes, um, in my opinion, and I think most people's opinion, um, if you're going to focus on one thing, that's what you want to focus on. Um, certainly, you know, in areas where there's a, a sufficient amount, and I'm talking, you know, five to maybe 25% of the landscape is already in sufficient nesting and broodering cover, one could start looking at, okay, do we have sufficient core wintering areas and food and things like that? But if you're going to do one thing, there's a the very good chance that 
the nesting cover and brooding cover is uh, the limiting factor D in your area. Describe just the subtle difference between nesting cover and brooding cover. Well, nesting cover is is something that is available, you know, in that late April, mid early mid May time frame that has at least eight uh, inches of of cover um, for a hen to initiate that nest. Uh, whereas brood ribbing cover is something that is um, has overhead cover. Um, you know, it has open space underneath for chicks to walk um, and is something that's diverse enough that's attracting a lot of insects. So, so give an example of a plant, like a willow tree or something, you know, patch of willows. Is that valuable for that cover above them or not so much? Well, it, mostly we're talking native grasses, warm season and cool season grasses uh, and diverse forb species. So native flowers, um, there could be certain legumes, alfalfa, clover, I mean, all those things can provide that. But the, the trick is it's undisturbed and it's generally from the prior year's growth. And so it's there right away spring. Yeah, it might be, you know, just coming up. It's a cool season grass because it started to grow early. Um, so there, there's a lot of different things that nesting cover can be, but it's gen generally undisturbed cover that's eight inches tall by that mid-April, yeah. early May. Because, you know, like right now, midsummer, it's beautiful. The prairies mm. have flowers and all that stuff. But that's not there when the nests are, when they're sitting on nests. You know, it's not growing yet. But the residual cover is there. Yes. Yeah. So to get into the, into the weeds on this, you know. <laughs> and weeds is a good word. Yeah. Because that's, you know, people think about a messy field. That's what we're after. You know, grass for nesting. But then when... when Aaron talks about brood cover. I um, automatically, that's, that's the pollinator habitat we're talking about. The structure he mentions, your, your question about willows, I'm thinking about compass, compass plants and cup plants, things that provide some vertical structure. They don't have to be as big as trees, but just enough concealment with bigger leaves to hide chicks. But then if you get to the bare ground, chicks that are the size of a ping pong ball can move around and find bugs. And what was real enlightening to me um, is what kind of bugs they're eating as they go yeah. through, right? Everyone thinks um, grasshoppers. Grasshoppers, yeah. which is true in September. It's, yes, but they're too dang big for a tiny little chick to eat. Right. So uh, tell us what, what they're eating right now, because when, when we talked about this, when I talked about this with Ron, I was like, whoa, I guess I didn't realize that, that really stood out to me too, Bob, when I listened. and worms and stuff right now. Yeah, well, I mean, they're very opportunistic, so they're eating whatever they can and the in insect variety. But yeah, they're generally eating softer type insects um, that are available. And, and so, you know, one thing that I, I think you started to hit on, but like you can have vertical structure that's like brome grass, for example. It's cool season, it's going to grow quickly, and there's certainly going to be nesting attempts there. Um, the problem is, is once those chicks hatch, then they have to leave because it's a monoculture. They can't walk. There's not openness underneath that you get from the different plants that Bob mentioned, but also the, the diversity of plants creates open space underneath. And so when you have these diverse native prairie grasslands, those pheasants, in ideally what you want is that to be nesting cover, but then also it becomes broodering cover in, in mid-June when the peak hatches because the, f the less distance those pheasants and chicks have to go to find food from where they were born, the better off they're going to be and the higher success they're going to have. You know, a lot of people think cattails will raise all the pheasants, but it's not an ideal place to nest, cattails, right? Correct. Well, usually they're underwater yeah. um, in the, during the time frame. Let's not undermine the value of cattails. Right. It's just not nesting, but it's probably the single best winter cover 
in the upper Midwest, in Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, if you can find them in Montana and parts of Kansas, Nebraska, it's cattails for my money are as good as it gets for winter cover. And then you get into to willows and, and some brushy stuff, but. And, and, and yes, Bob's absolutely right on, you know, if, if you had to pick one, that's probably the most naturally occurring available winter cover. And, you know, Size matters with, with a lot of things. Size matters, right? Um, you know, you want to have those winter, those core wintering areas, we call them, or, or cattail sloughs, you know, shrubby stuff, uh, at least 10 acres if you can get it. You know, we've all seen Western Minnesota and especially the Dakotas. Um, just last year, as a matter of fact, you get a foot of snow and then you get 50 mile an hour winds and those cattail sloughs fill up really quick. So you need something that's big enough that, you know, one or two of those kind of snowstorms isn't going to completely fill up that cattail slough, making it you know, not as valuable for that core wintering area. I wasn't intending to go to winter just yet, but since we're here, um, you know, we had that a lot across Pheasant Belt last year. A lot of snow. The cattails were covered, you know, I remember walking in December into the cattails. Bob, I know you did this too, and Aaron, I'm sure you did, but like, for Bob and I, it's like up to our chest. You know, I was going to say, snow. could you even see over the top? <laughs> right. Aaron's had to pull me out of the head. No lie. <laughs> um, but those birds are underneath there, you know. And so how long when they are running underneath there, first of all, like what do they need to roost to survive the winter? But how long can they stay in there without food? Well, a pheasant can go pretty easily. I'd say, you know, three, four days maybe without food. Um, obviously, it all depends on how they're coming into winter, how early winter starts, how long winter lasts. And so, you know, if a pheasant, you know, has 10 or 15% of their body weight in fat reserves, that's good. Um, but if the winter's four months versus two months, you know, that's going to make a difference in, in terms of, to your question, how long they can survive in there. And so, you know, the other things you have to consider is, you know, not only the cattail slew, but how far are they foraging every day once they can feed? Are they, are they feeding in the open where they're exposed to predators? Are they having to go a quarter mile or a, a mile away to find food? Is it, is it taking them all day to, you know, get their caloric intake? And, you know, I've heard said that uh, a pheasant in the winter needs about the equivalent of three candy bars um, worth of food. So, to maintain their body weight. And so, if they don't get that, they're, they're eating away at that, that fat reserve and how, how long they can do that really dictates, you know, what's happening on the landscape during that, that winter. Well, stay in winter here. This was a common thing we've all heard a lot. Boy, there were pheasants up on the road, you know. What's happening when pheasants are up on the road in the winter, and why are they there? Well, you see them on the roads all time of the year, yeah. and they do, you know, look for some gravel and stuff to help with digestion of food. But um, in my experience, a, a lot of times I've seen pheasants on the road, you know, pre or artificially because folks are putting food on the road in an effort to help pheasants get through the winter and you know we do not support that and and you know we, we want a better plan in place for for getting pheasants through a winter but um those are the two reasons i've seen pheasants on the road and generally speaking though and maybe this is where your head like if if you are seeing pheasants in the open on the edge of fields in the heart of winter that's an indication those birds are stressed because they're not in really secure winter cover easy to find accessible food exposing themselves to predation by being in the open field is that accurate it, it could be i mean again it, it there's a lot of things that go into that um but i mean that's certainly a possibility okay so back to the chicks <clears throat> we are now late july so uh 
peak of the hatch happens typically June. Mid-June. Mid-June. Yeah. Okay. And that's from Minnesota to Montana and Kansas. Where, how far does that fluctuate based on proximity or location or state? Well, I mean, as we talked a little bit earlier, you know, based on local conditions, you know, pheasants are really attempting to nest all summer, you know, so from, let's say that I've seen pheasant chicks in Minnesota as early as late May. And so obviously they're, they're initiating nests way before the averages that we just talked about, but, um, you know, and they're, they're, you know, sometimes working on their third or fourth attempt if the first two were, were destroyed. So, um, you know, the peak hatch, I would say, is, you know, early June, or j- we could just say June is, is peak hatch across the pheasant range. But if you had to really neck it down to be mid-June, I'd say across the pheasant range, yeah. Okay, so what factors weather-wise can people be looking back at and say, holy crap, we had, th- we had a heavy downpour in the middle of June, should I be concerned? Or what, what things happen from mid-June till the chicks are... Uh, maybe grown enough to withstand some of the elements that come across. So what, what I like to say is what you really are hoping for is kind of moderation or balance. Um, you know, you need some moisture generally, but you don't want floods. You don't want gully washers. Um, you want to have in general, a warm, dry spring, you know, during that June time frame. Um, you know, once chicks are born, you know, after that 23 day period, they can't thermoregulate for several days. And so if you get a, a, degree, a night where it gets down in the 40s, low 40s or even high 30s, none of those chicks will perish because they cannot maintain their body heat until... They, does mom cover them like she does on the nest? No. Nope. Okay. Nope. Not that I'm aware of anyway. I, so I she can't save them? No. No. Once they're hatched, um, I mean, she's with them, but they're kind of on their own from that perspective. Wow. So um, temperature is a, plays a big role. And then hailstorms can be devastating too. Yep. Uh, Hailstorms, uh, extreme heat can be, you know, if, uh, if uh, you get over 102 degrees, same thing as, as cold, you know, it can get too hot for those pheasants chicks. So, so they really need, you know, like, like I said, just moderation if possible. So what's the temperature that you like, <laughs> I mean, if we walked outside right now, guys, it is brutal, but it's, it probably feels worse to us because of the humidity. It's not so much the heat. It's the gosh darn humidity. Um, but, like, we're going to be approaching close to mid-90s in central Minnesota today. I know it's hotter. Right. In the, the folks other, in Phoenix are saying They're like, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But at what point do you look out there and say, come on, little buddies, you got to make it. You well, can do this. And the thing you got to remember is, you know, we're now in late July. So, you know, the peak hatch is over. Yes, there are, are certainly some hens still attempting to pull off a, a hatch, but... You know, those pheasants are now, you know, four weeks to six weeks old, probably, um, or a lot of them are. And now they've developed that ability to kind of withstand some more of those extreme temperatures. Um, whereas if you're in mid-June or, or late June, they're not going to be able to handle that. So, so you know, the, we can handle weather like today is, is very likely not going to affect a pheasant uh, for the most part, in, at least in Minnesota. Okay. Um, at what point do they start to fly? Um, short flights, you know, when they're two to three weeks old, you probably seen, you know, if you're driving around in a road ditch and see a pheasant, you want to stop to count them, you know, you see them just kind of go that 50 yards or whatever and fall back down. Um, that's at two to three weeks, you know, by say five to six weeks, they're flying, you know, about whatever an adult pheasant could fly. Maybe not as fast or maybe not quite as far, but, but they're enough to evade me and me and Travis (laughs) (laughs) and and your four legged friends. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. You know, here in Minnesota, August 1st, we're a couple days away from being able to go out on public land and run dogs off leash. And 
I love to get out there and train. I spend a lot of time out there early in the morning before I come into the office. Daisy and I will do a hot lap or two out there and just working on, you know, her steadiness and anything else that I want to have ready for the hunting season. Um, do you do you see any concern with people doing that? Um, a little bit, actually. And, and most people don't think about this, but, you know, a hen pheasant, everybody thinks, you know, getting through winter and stuff is her biggest challenge. Well, July and August, hens are at most of the year, uh, or at most of the time, at their smallest weight and have the least amount of fat reserves. And if you think about it, you know, they had a little time to try to recover from winter and build some fat reserves, but ever since, they've been expending a ton of energy building a nest, laying an egg a day, maybe doing that for two or three nests, you know, if her first two failed, and then trying to get their chicks into forage. And so she is not consuming the last couple months very much food. Um, and she'll, she's, they can be, you know, 20 to 25% below their typical body weight right now. And so they need to find food quickly. And, and if they're if there are folks that are consistently moving them and, and harassing them, that affects their ability to do that. And so, you know, if that leads to mortality, it's hard to say. But um, I think, you know, again, like anything done in moderation, yeah. it's good. But, you know, we certainly, in my opinion, don't want to be out harassing them daily um, just to get some good dog work. And, and I'm guilty of it myself, too. I, I love it's, to it's do that. It's a balance. Yeah. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is. Like, we, we want to make more of these birds, but we also want to enjoy the all that comes with all the birds mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. And heat is a limiting factor for us and the dogs too anyways, yeah. right? Like how, how much can you get your dog out running in thick, heavy grass in July and August? It's pretty darn tough because you got to be sensitive to are you going to overwork the dog and create some vulnerability there. Sure. I think a lot of my times I'm out and, and maybe Aaron, tell me if I'm doing something that you wouldn't recommend here, but I'll go early in the morning. You know, Bob, I know a lot of times when you take your dogs out, it's early in the morning, Aaron. I'm sure you do the same thing too. When it's when it's the coolest of the day, there's dew on the ground. Is that a bad time to be out there for the bird's sake? Um, I, I don't have an opinion on time of the day. Okay. Um, so, I mean, again, in, and I've, I've said this, I'm, I'm guilty of doing this too, and, and I enjoy it, and it's fun to watch, and it's fun to see the broods. And so I... I think it's just a matter of, you know, if, if that, if three people are on a piece of public land every day doing the same thing, that hen's probably going to suffer. But if it's, you know, once a week or, you know, probably won't even affect her daily ability to, to forage and, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't have any stats or evidence that it, you know, leads to mortality with, with hens. I just know that they have a really important job in July and August, and that's to get their chicks keep their chicks surviving and also they need to put on a lot of weight for the upcoming fall and winter too because they're they're at their lowest uh point uh, yeah i think it's a good reminder just for us that we want to be out there you know there's a lot of excitement building for the hunting season and you know getting out there with your dogs and seeing the birds i mean but to just be mindful i guess and that's a reminder for me anybody else listening can take that as a reminder for themselves too when i see them you know i'm like that's, that's, you know, mm-hmm. she's Daisy stands there on point, you know, I'm good. We turn, we go a different direction. It's not like I go and try to. Well, and it, you, you mentioned a good component of that is, is point, right? Cause there's other breeds that their goal is to flush and catch. And if you got dogs out there that are catching chicks, yeah. that is a bad thing. So right. you got to really have control of your pup. Yeah. Excellent reminder there. What? Um, through this process, the, the, we focus on the hens right now. 
people just kind of stop thinking about the roosters for a while. What are the roosters doing after they <clears throat> do the deed? And now they just kind of sit back and uh, relax for the winter, or for the spring and summer. Yeah, they're they're kind of living the good life as much as it can be for a rooster. I mean, obviously, uh, come October, they are targeted like nothing <laughs> else, and so so it's kind of one of those things where they're. I just envision them sitting on their reclining chair like an old mid forties year old man Do watching TV. They group some up TV like bachelor groups, <laughs> you know. Like I, I've never seen that. The no, they forties. Yeah, <laughs> watching so, some TV or Modern Family or whatever they whatever they do. They're just sitting there uh, living the easy life. There's Watching the episodes of The Flush, trying to figure out how to evade us next time. Be like, I don't have to worry about that guy. I don't have to worry about that guy. We're good there. Aaron's Thursday nights. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the whole bachelor group is a real thing in a lot of other animals. It's not a thing for pheasants. I suppose they interact with each other just because they're all seeking the best habitat possible. So it probably brings them close together but there's no summer you know uh seasonal movements that roosters go through no in my experience i you know they're even through june july and, and maybe even a little august they're still kind of in their established territories you know they're it's not the days where they're standing on a road ready to fight a vehicle because they're so aggressive and and trying to dominate and protect their territory but they're still in their territories you know maybe you know trying to to recruit a hen or two, you know, um, but it's just kind of way more laid back. Um, I kind of equate it to, you know, if you guys are deer hunters, you know, when the rut is on, those those deer are just crazy and running everywhere. And and then in December, they're still thinking about it, but they're, they're it's more towards food and, and food plots and putting on those the fat reserves for the winter. And that's, that's kind of how roosters are. Okay. Um, so we're about, well, we're, we're, we're getting towards the time when all the birds are doing their thing out there. They're eating insects. At what point do they switch from insects over to seeds in a diet of a chick? Well, I guess I would, if I had to put a week on it, you know, at about five weeks, you know, they're kind of expanding their their diet, so to speak. And um, really come September, October, you know, when, when a lot of those chicks are reaching what I'd say adulthood, you know, they're 12, 14 weeks old, that kind of thing. You know, that's when the grains, you know, corn and wheat and other things become a bigger factor uh, in their diet. And a big piece of that is the frost too, right? So when frost hits, it kills off the insects. So they are forced to change their yep. diet too. Yep. It's certainly a big part of it. This season, I think a lot of optimism reigns across pheasant country going into it just because of what people are seeing with their eyes out there right now. Um, would you say you don't, I know every area is different, but overall, how do you guys feel about the way this spring and summer has played out for the pheasants? Uh, I would say cautiously optimistic, you know, I, and I, I don't know why this is, I guess in my perspective, you know, we saw the bad winter in Minnesota and the Dakotas, and I was just expecting very high mortality and, and just, you know, I heard reports of dead pheasants, but then come spring and people are out turkey hunting. So like, well, geez, I, I'm seeing a lot more pheasants than I thought I was going to see. And, and so, yeah, we've heard a lot of those reports and now obviously the brood reports are coming in and people are, are seeing quite a few broods. They're seeing big broods, which indicates you know, what Bob was talking about, a lot of first nesting probably was successful. Um, so that, you know, leads to a higher pheasant population in the yeah. fall. And so, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this fall. Bob, you want to add anything to that? I 100% echo it. I, you know, 
absolutely nervous based on how hard a winner it was and everybody was. I mean, we, we heard it, we saw it on social media, feedback on the podcast, and then you, we couldn't have scripted likely a better, you know, it was always better if we had more habitat on the ground. But from a weather perspective, I don't think we could have scripted it better for first nesting success. And as a reminder, that's 12 eggs versus eight, eight or five. I think it was a high percentage or higher than normal percentage of first nesting success based on weather. And we're seeing that in the cursory reports, you know, just average members out running around looking at them. Now, we don't have the scientific data yet because states don't initiate August roadside counts until next week. And then we're, we'll get some, you know, and it's not it's not a population count. It's an index. You know, it's running the same route, comparing it year to year to year. But it'll be a really good indicator of what we're seeing with our eyes, what we're feeling based on turkey hunting. Yeah. Um, you know, is it proven to be true in those numbers? I, so last year I had a couple different roadside counters on this show. Mm-hmm. I had Scott Rawl on, and, you know, he does his survey down in Nobles County. And, um, you know, I, I'm like, how much variability do these surveys have? If one area gets released like minnesota will take because we're all here we do a pretty good job of giving you like a a, almost a region or a county by county breakdown of what they're seeing but how much do you trust those numbers and if it's down would you say well don't be so down on it because it was a it was a stormy day and Mm -hmm. you're not going to see much based on the weather that particular day when the spotter was out or driving well, I mean, there's certain prescriptions that they have to follow. So if it's, you know, they have, I don't remember if it's 20 days or something to complete these surveys. And so they have to only go out when there's certain weather conditions, you know, you know, no wind, you know, those kinds of, in the early morning. So generally speaking, the surveys are run with the same weather conditions every year or close to it. Um, but it is just an index or a survey, um, you know, and, and we've seen examples of it working both ways where the numbers maybe seem a little bit higher because maybe the conditions were perfect um, than what the pheasants actually are. And like last year was a great example that the counts didn't indicate what most people saw in the, in the fall. They, they saw way more birds than they, than the, the survey re- you know, showed. So was that, you know, late nest attempts? Was it pheasants just not coming to the road? You know, who knows what it was, but, you know, there's a lot of people that said, I was pleasantly surprised with how many birds were in the fall that, you know, just weren't seen all summer. Where are you guys concerned about going into this season as far as the pheasant range? Is there an area that you think might be down based on, Hmm. you know, winter or other factors? Um, No, you know, I, I guess, my focus and I think the focus of our organization is, you know, we're just trying to get more grass on the landscape. You know, that is the limiting factor in the pheasant range for the most part. Um, and we've had some recent successes, you know, with CRP and, and other announcements that Bob may want to talk about, but, yeah. um, you know, we just need to get more grass on the landscape in the pheasant range generally. And we know that if we can do that part, there's going to be ebbs and flows with the weather, but we're going to have strong bird populations in the, across the entire Midwest. If we have grass on the ground, quality grass, well, I want to get into the CRP. I want to get into habitat uh, topics here in a, in a second, but let's stick with the birds and bring us back through fall season. Um, at what point now will they disperse? I mean, I know the you know it's not a covey. It's not like quail that sticks together, but for a while they will. Uh, at what point do these birds disperse uh, from the family group? 
Well, generally, uh, when a chick is about 10 weeks old, mom's going to leave, you know, and so um, I've, I've noticed in the field, you know, even though mom might not be there, you know, a lot of the siblings kind of hang out together, at least in maybe loose groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like September 1. Roughly, right? It, Ten even, weeks? Even through, yeah. Yep. Well, and again, it depends when they were born. But, you know, uh, even through, I'm sure we've all seen those little groups or broods of pheasants uh, on opening day that, you know, the, the roosters may cackle, but you can't really tell which yep. one's mm-hmm. cackling. So, um, you know, by 16 weeks, you know, they're kind of full adults. You probably can't differentiate them from a true adult. Um, and they're operating independently. I uh, want to talk a little bit about what makes that bird so damn elusive at times what qualities help it escape the natural predators and then us as a predator as well is it their hearing is it the way that they because i i really think that it's like they can feel you coming Mm -hmm. you could walk quietly and they still know you're there Mm -hmm. right is there any biology to that i don't know if there's any biology in my opinion is the ones that aren't smart, that don't know how to evade or haven't learned that quickly are in our bags. And the ones that are left are the ones that have figured out how to evade folks. And, and you know, I, you see that progress through the hunting season. So, you know, opening weekend, you know, even the several weekends after the, those birds, you know, they hold pretty well. They may run, but your dog can figure it out. And, you know, by December, those birds that are left, boy, you know, those are true trophies. And, and you know, they... If there's snow, you can see exactly how they tried to evade you, and yeah. they're darn good at it at times. But whether they can feel your footsteps, I'm, I'm sure they can. You know, they certainly can hear well. Um, I'm sure they've kind of learned uh, to associate certain noises with, with danger um, by that time. So, you know, those are all just cues, I think, that they... Somebody they yelling, here, here! <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the door, I, obviously, I, the door I, I think about it, you know, it's like we all think... Our dogs are magical and can, you know, we release them out of the truck. And if there's birds here, <laughs> Fido's going to find it, yeah. you know. And, and even the best dogs, you know, I, every Wednesday night I train with a, a group of folks, um, varying degrees of bird dogs. But, you know, John Zeman, who you've had on, his dogs are not varying degrees. They're phenomenal, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you can you can even watch those pups where you know exactly where a bird is in a launcher, a pigeon in a launcher. And if the conditions, the wind and humidity and the things, they're not right, it can take even the best of the best dogs a while to locate do- uh, um, a pigeon in a launcher where you know they're And if at. you continue to walk. And you continue to walk by because you're yeah. just looking for a needle in the haystack. Um, and a, a huge advantage that, in my opinion, that pheasants have is their first instinct is to run rather than show themselves by getting into the air yeah they have the advantage of flight but they don't use that unless that's the that would be their third that that's their third escape route run would be number one Mm. freeze Freeze. would be number two right flight would be number three and yeah i think uh, i want to go back to the hearing part and i've mentioned this story several times but i tell it all the time because it's so valuable there was a time where there's a full section. We're in Western Minnesota in December, and we were filming uh, Kang Yang's story. Mm. And um, we were on this property, and we're on this corner of a section on the road. And I said, all right, the birds have been running away from us this whole time, and the frustration is starting to mount. 
And I said, all right, I am going to walk a mile down and a mile up or half mile up so that I am in the, I'm going to stop the run here. It's a ditch that runs through the center of this uh, picked cornfield, you know, and I will give you a signal to start going. Okay. So I am a mile from them. I can see a tiny, tiniest little orange dots across the field. And there's a hill so that the birds can't see us coming in. I'm out in the middle of this field and I give them the signal to start heading. They've got to walk about uh, roughly a quarter mile before they get to the trees and then where the grass starts. Mm -hmm. They are maybe 100 yards into the walk and I already see pheasants running across the field towards me. And I'm just watching them. They have zero idea that the birds are already running away from them. The pheasants see me standing there, an orange pumpkin, and they just go, and they freeze, and then they head back into the cover. So those roosters, the hunters had not even gotten a, you know, a quarter of a mile from the cover. They're still on the gravel road, walking down the gravel road towards it, and the birds are already running. They weren't yelling. They weren't shooting. They weren't slamming doors. They were just walking mm -hmm. down gravel road. And the birds were already that far ahead of them. Six, seven, eight hundred yards ahead of them, sneaking out. Yeah. Had I not made the full mile loop to, to come around, I, we would have never known that. But they hear it or they feel it. Coming. The vibrations in their feet. Pheasants also have extremely good eyesight too. So that's the other thing. They can they can see you very well. And if you're an archery hunter and ever tried to like move in a tree stand even uh, when a pheasant's walking by, un undoubtedly they've seen you and the hunters experience that. Yeah. I mean like a turkey, mm -hmm. they have excellent eyesight. So a pheasant you say has eyesight that's pretty good. A lot of times people don't realize that because they're in such thick cover. How are they going to see you coming? Well, you put all those things together, it makes them a pretty challenging bird. Biggest mistake I think people make is they walk too fast, right? Would you guys agree when, when it comes to hunting them? Yeah, I think so. Bob, what's the biggest mistake people make when they're hunting them? Uh, um, I, I don't disagree with walking too fast. My, my first gut was walking the same path that everybody else walks. They, you know, you park in a wildlife area and you can, right? It's, <laughs> you like, can a, see, it's like a deer trail through it's the grass. It's like two weeks in, it's a sidewalk. It is a deer trail. Like everybody walks the exact same way. So, so yes, I think walking too fast can be, I th also think walking too slow can be a problem. Like I trust your dog, right? Um, but I feel like walking the same perimeter around the edge of that cornfield and then boxing to the edge of the soybean field and boxing to the, it's like 13 people did that this weekend walk through the middle right. you know right. so i don't know some i think the the key is you know anglers always say well change up the color change up the pattern like Pheasant hunters should think like a, uh, a fisherman or a fisherwoman once in a while. Like, change up the pattern. Now is a great time to make the most of all that tasty meat you harvested. Maybe it's time to try a new recipe, sprinkle on a new seasoning, or make your own jerky and sausage. Trust me, it's not that hard to do, and it can be fun for the whole family. It doesn't matter what you harvested or what you want to prepare with it. Walton's has you covered. Walton's has everything but the meat. That's their motto. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything you need to process and prepare your meat. 
Plus, they have an online community called Meatgistics that's full of recipes and meat processing information. The sky's the limit, my friends. You don't have to be a pro to cook like one. Head to Waltons.com today and enjoy meat processing season. Thankfully, it's a season that never ends. A healthy dog is a happy dog, and a dog's optimal health ultimately starts with an optimal diet. That's why I trust Nutrisource Performance Dog Food to keep Daisy healthy and running to her full potential. Nutrisource now has a full circle feeding plan that can help your dog achieve their full potential too. The full circle feeding plan revolves around their entire lineup of Nutrisource dog foods that contain their good for life system. The Nutrisource good for life system is packed with probiotics, prebiotics, and proprietary minerals that work together to support your dog's heart health and gut health. By combining this system and all of their dry foods and wet foods, you can rotate carbs and proteins like chicken, beef, fish, and lamb to meet and exceed your dog's needs and accelerate their natural desire to eat. Plus, their toppers like kombucha add even more health benefits for our dogs. Learn more about Nutrisource dog foods and the benefits of their full circle feeding plans at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. It's something that you and I, we, I at least found it to be quite fascinating. When we spent a day out west last year, as the day went on, we how big is Kaharski's property that we were on? Is it 160? I think that's right. Yeah, something like that. So it's, it's not, not a huge no. chunk of land. However... As the day went on, we found more and more birds. And we walked a couple of those yep. uh, places, digzag loops, yep. and did. You we know, stayed circles. on the exact same property, walked at different directions and different angles through it, mm-hmm. never left, right? Never left. And the more we walked it, the more birds we found until you, me, Dave Simonette, we all. And Kaharski. And Kaharski, we all got our limit of roosters that day and it was amazing and if we were if we were just you know driving down the road and see somebody out on a property be like all right it's done for the day yeah i'm not gonna hunt that one but i think what i learned there is timing is everything how much those birds are running around you give them another look it's not the end of the world to go on a on a hunt on a property that somebody else has already hunted on because who knows? Your dog might run in a different direction. You should walk it a different direction. You should approach it differently mm-hmm. and not be afraid to at least give it a try. The wind can change, and mm-hmm. that can change everything for what the dog encounters. And let's face it, like, yeah, you can hunt pheasants without a dog, but it's really... Yeah, yeah. Go, go grouse hunting if you don't have a dog, but... Hunting pheasants without a dog is like a lost cause, in my opinion. <laughs> I know tough. that I've it, done it. It's it, tough. I, it, it's really tough, and yeah. I I also don't like the idea of they're so tough. You you gotta just wallop it to bring that back to your hand if you don't have a dog. Grouse hunting completely different. Rough grouse is what I'm talking about, yep. and to some extent, sharp tails. Completely different. Totally doable without a dog, but pheasant hunting. Boy, the partnership that exists with a canine is super important, in my opinion. Plus, it's just really fun to watch a dog work. No doubt. No doubt. I had something I wanted to add onto that. Dang it, I forgot. Shoot. Um, ah, dang it. Okay, well, let's keep moving on then. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll think about it when we come back. Um, all right, so that brings us through. Oh, 
best okay so i wanted to talk break down a day mm. when when you want to be out there hunting obviously we want to maximize our day fall days are short and you make the most of it when you can but the golden hour is special time to be out there for a reason what makes that last hour of the day so much better is it because the birds have been eating all day they're fat they don't want to get up are they behaving differently from sunrise noon to the golden hour during the day you want me to take that one yeah go for it so what makes it so special to me is you know they've been out feeding all day so they've a lot of times not been in the grassland depending on the time of the year and they're coming back to roost for the night and so they're coming back to find cover to be there overnight for the next, you know, 12 hours, nine hours, whatever, depending on the length of the day. And so all of these pheasants are doing that at the same time in a short time window. So you don't have to walk as far um, and you can walk certain areas that are, you know, adjacent to co to food um, to make that, you know, that special golden hour type situation. Are they holding tighter that time of the day? Tip I mean, it feels like it, right? But get, are they really? I don't know. That's that's a good question. I guess I can't say if they're actually hold tighter. I've seen some some really wily roosters uh, outsmart yeah. me even during the golden hour. But you know, it it, it does seem um, anecdotally like they're maybe they maybe hold a little bit better. A lot of hunters are nodding right now. They're like, yeah, they they just sit there, you know, during that golden hour. It, it or is it like, there's more birds that you're encountering that it seems like they're holding tighter? I'd say because like, Aaron mentioned they're going there to roost mm -hmm. and to sleep. Right, that's yep. their like. So yeah, they're holding tighter because that's their end point for the day. They don't want to leave again. They, not, yeah. And not all of them, because some of them are still transitioning to places where. But you know, we we've all been walking a field, and you see the birds fly out of the cornfield where they've been feeding all day, and then they just drop into that great looking grassland habitat. And you're like, well, we know where they wanted to be sleeping tonight, you know, and you look at your watching like. 45 minutes left. Let's go. Yeah. And they tend, not always, but they tend, I think, to to be locked down and hunker down a little bit. A little bit. Um, I don't want to get controversial on this at all, but I've, you know, wondered, and I've talked to biologists before about this, South Dakota added another month to the hunting season. Um, based on what we know about the rooster population and how many need to carry over, do you support their move to extend the season out there? And would you support other states wanting to extend the hunting season for birds in Minnesota or Iowa or wherever to extend another month to give hunters more opportunities? Why or why not? In general, yes. And, you know, Minnesota has done that too. I don't know, uh, you know, when it was, but maybe about 15 years ago, I think it ended in the middle of December. And, and Pheasants Forever was part of an effort with our chapters and, and other supporters to get it to where it is now in that early January end date. So, I mean, again, we're harvesting surplus roosters that, you know, are not going to benefit next year's population. In fact, you know, harvesting more may actually be a benefit. But, you know, the, the concern that is valid with extending the season is if you're hunting that golden hour and it's 20 degrees with a 20 mile an hour wind and it's below zero wind chills and you're forcing those pheasants out of the cover that they need to be in that night, um, into marginal habitat or into fields or whatever, does that have an effect on those hens and their ability to to stay warm and you know not use their fat reserves artificially? Is is the concern? But um, everything that I've seen is you know there's so few hunters out towards the end of the season that there isn't a, a landscape level effect for extending the seasons. Gotcha. And 
are there other states that you know of that are toying around with the idea of extending the season? I'm not aware of any states that are talking about extending the season, but think about it. There's a, a number of states that already have extended seasons, right? Because um, yeah, as you mentioned, South Dakota mm -hmm. is now through the end of January. Iowa's always been January 10th, I believe, and you think Nebraska, Kansas go through the end of January. You know, we live in Minnesota, and we're sort of like blinded in our own yeah. world. Yep. But it does go to, in North Dakota ends um, end of December, whatever that Yeah, it, I think we're both like January 1. Like you, I think you can hunt on January 1st. If it's the, I think if it's the Sunday of the end of the season, something, something like that. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Um, the, but when you think about the states that do end at the end of December, 1st of January, it's the farthest northern states, which gets to the point that Aaron's making about the severity of the winter. You know, Kansas and Nebraska do have severe winters, but nowhere near the level of snow depth and impact that, uh, you know, a northern or western Minnesota will have. So, you know, if we think about the golden hour in November, hunting birds at that last hour and boosting them out of the roost, like, honestly, not that big of a deal, right? But if you're boosting birds out of a roost on January 15th and to Aaron's point, maybe not even 20, maybe a negative 20, you're just hardy and you're just, ah, I mean, I'm here. I made this trip on a hunt. Then you are putting in particular the hens that you're going to flush out of the good thermal cover in a, into a vulnerable place. So it's not really scientifically uh, or biologically that big a deal if you lose more roosters. We even talked about this already, yeah. right? You only yep. need 10% of roosters to carry over. It is pushing hens out of that good cover, mm -hmm. making them vulnerable to dying overnight, or at the very minimum, lessening their health for when they do get into nesting season, and then you're sort of perpetuating the problem. So, you know, hunt as long and as late as possible, but just do it in moderation if the weather's severe. Is that an accurate assessment? Goes back to moderation again. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about PF and habitat uh, as we wrap up the show here. How much does membership support members in the organization? Uh, how much in, uh, bird population numbers correlate with your membership? If the numbers go down, we have bad weather, bad mm -hmm. winters. Mm -hmm. Do you lose members based mm -hmm. on that? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's counterintuitive to what, and we've talked about yeah. this before, right? Yeah. Where <clears throat> you think you want to believe as a society when there's a problem, right? Like the church burned down, so the community's going to rally, make donations, and build the church back up. And you want to believe that with wildlife, right? With habitat is you know, declining bird populations are hurting. Let's rally. Come let's on, rally. Guys. Let's yeah. turn the tide. It's the opposite, unfortunately. And that's when you're screaming yeah, at the office like, days. We need you. Yeah. It, it actually happens in reverse with wildlife. Like when bird numbers are high, you know, there's, there's roadside counts, you know, and this is what you're alluding to. And, you know, there's fair weather hunters. There's fair Brood report hunters, right? <laughs> you know, I think the three of us and probably the majority of the folks listening to this podcast would be like, I don't really, I want to know what the brood reports are, but I'm going to hunt. I'm going I own, anyway. I own dogs. Yeah. I love it. It's part of who I am. But there's a 
portion of society that if there's really good brood reports, Polish off that shotgun and let's yeah. fight. You know, tune up, Fido. Yeah, I was gonna say, get Fido on. This is <laughs> your get year, off the buddy. Couch, Fido. <laughs> We're gonna go. Um, You're gonna be a bird dog and, this year. You know, they're talking to their buddies like Travis. I know you love. You got any room for me to go to North Dakota this year? Yeah. You know, and there's a pretty big segment of people like that that rally when the numbers are up and get engaged and become members, and that's wonderful. Yeah, we absolutely 100 percent need all bird hunters pheasant hunters quail hunters if you love rough grouse join the rough grouse society mm-hmm. you know sharp tails sage grouse get involved with us or north american grouse partnership or minnesota sharp tail society minnesota prairie chickens get involved no matter what your passion because we all need for a couple of reasons the funding obviously is straightforward you know we have a really unique model where dollars raised um, especially at the local level, get back into the ground for habitat, right? Um, for 40 plus years of this organization, we're 90% on the dollar of putting money back into the ground. But even a bigger component than just that membership dollar hitting the ground is relevance and voice on policy. Yeah. So when Aaron goes to talk about Iowa water land and legacy, I will, which is Iowa's version of the legacy of amendment in Minnesota, which in my view is the single biggest game changer in my 20 year career with pheasants forever. It is having a positive impact on the landscape in Minnesota for water quality, for public recreation, for healthy minds being able to explore nature in the outdoors. Which, which by the way, is that coming back up for a renewal? It's it, it will be, but it's still a little ways. Twenty thirty four, it goes through. Okay, but, but I thought it is, was something coming up sooner that, than that. That's the Environmental Trust Fund. Okay, uh, yep, gotcha. It, it, and the Legacy Amendment is one hundred percent creating habitat that's putting birds on the landscape and public access to it to for all of us to hunt them. So, Iowa passed the legislation a decade. Well, it's like twelve years ago now, but they they. Are, they haven't passed a funding mechanism to fund that legislation yet. So that they're on the precipice, but they've been on the precipice for about 12 years. Um, that sort of thing can change the dynamic on the landscape. And the point is, um, when we have more members and we have more folks writing letters to elected officials, whether it's at the state level or Washington, D.C., to get involved in you know, we're in a brand new farm bill year. We're trying to get this concept of a North American Grasslands Conservation Act passed. We want to get Recovering America's Wildlife Act. There's a lot of conservation legislation that's, you know, great in theory, but until we get it over the hump and have it be in practice on the landscape, it's just a great idea, right? And what, mm-hmm. what makes it possible what could make it a reality is more people talking to legislative you know you sent you two u.s senators and whoever your u.s representative is and you think about well, those people don't care about me just pissing into the wind trying to talk to those people <laughs> and, and and there's a there's a level of apathy that exists particularly um i think within the outdoors community 
like we all go to the outdoors to get away from it get away yep and and there's a level of apathy like my voice doesn't matter I'm pounding on the table. It, it <laughs> and here comes Daisy. She wants it, to know what's wrong. Hi, Daisy. Yeah. Hi, Daisy. Yeah. It, it absolutely, I mean, folks will tell you, you know, Colin Peterson, um, retired U.S. representative from Western Minnesota. If you, if I get 10 letters, emails, letters, phone calls on a particular topic, it grabs my attention. Just 10. It's crazy. 10. It's crazy. So think about the audience here. Yeah. If you write your representative and say, hey, I want a Grasslands Act. Go to actforgrasslands.org. If we have 10 people in western Minnesota and 10 people in, you know, eastern North Dakota and 10 people, in, and, and it starts to make an impact mm-hmm. and it gets momentum and that relevancy is super important. What, where are we at with the current farm bill? I saw an announcement about a certain amount of acreage that has been enrolled. Are you happy with that? And what is the number? Um, so there's, we could get really complex really quick, right? There's, there's basically, maybe we do an overview of it. Yeah. Real big overview. Um, so 27 million acre cap of CRP broken up into three different buckets, general CRP, which is kind of, um, the 1985 Ronald Reagan version of CRP. That's been super important to bringing bird numbers back. That's, that's pretty low right now. That, those acres, we got a, about a million acres back into the program here about a month ago, which was good, but soil rental rates for that CRP element are pretty low, and we really need to boost that up. That's the bread and butter of bird hunters. Continuous CRP, which are the specific practices targeting specific deliverables like water quality through buffers or there's state acres for wildlife enhancement safe that each state gets to pick what they want to target bobwhite quail in georgia back 40 pheasants in minnesota that's really a very successful component but it tends to be a significantly smaller acres that's really good that's sort of the next evolution of crp that's been really really productive across the country the third piece is grasslands CRP, which is kind of rising like a hockey stick in terms of t- number of acres. It's um, lower payments, bigger acres, much more marginal lands, having a really beneficial impact uh, for areas like um, Oklahoma and Kansas, like lesser prairie chickens that are you know really vulnerable right now population-wise. Grassland CRP is like the number one best friend of trying to protect um, uh, lessers and, and sage grouse, but but it's um, it, it, it has benefits for for pheasants and quail, but that general CRP is the one that we really need to to improve, and the entirety of it is being debated right now as part of the 2023 farm bill. Um, we have a long ways to go to get a new farm bill this year. You think it'll happen? Um, I, I, I've never made any money, um, handicapping, betting, handicapping <laughs> Washington, D.C. <laughs> right. Um, I, well, okay. I, so I, I, won't, a, I won't make you answer, but yeah, I think we all I think know it's, what it is. It's going to yeah. be a challenge. Yeah. It's okay. A so we didn't hit the amount of acres that were available in there. That's what a lot of hunters say. What the heck? Um, maximize it. Get it up there. But we're getting close, which is good. Particular, and that's where the grassland CRP, um, I, we set a record number of acres offered for grassland CRP, which demonstrates the 
interest level that exists out there for farmers and ranchers to improve. So they just didn't qualify? They, they can only qualify so many acres based on um, budget, right? Yeah. So, so we're actually getting close to that 27 okay. million acre cap if you look at all three components. But you're, you're, you are correct. Like The more we can demonstrate demand for CRP and that we need to boost those acres, because if you think about... The high point of birds in our lifetimes, you know, was that 06, 07 time frame. Like, you know, it was... Before the prices for egg change. Yeah, yep. yeah ethanol subsidies mm-hmm. and different things came into play. It was perfect time for me to get my first bird dog as a kind of adult, right? Yeah. It was bird numbers 60-year high in, in uh, Minnesota and 40-year high in South Dakota and 40-year high in North Dakota and that 07, 08. And it's not that far ago, you know? Right. We can all remember and I can, I've can i got tales of those birds, you know? And we've had some ebbs and flows, but at that moment, um, it was a CRP program. Was it 32 million acres, Aaron? Does that sound right? 32, yeah. Uh, so... 32 to 20. So we still have a ways to go. Um, five, we're off by 5 million acres at this time. In significant acres, too. Yeah. You know, um, so th- the key here is soil rental rates need to be boosted to make it more attractive for landowners to get enrolled. And, and, you know, Bob talked about the continuous CRP program and how successful that has been because it's so flexible down to the state or local level. And so us not having 27 million acres right now is can be viewed as a good thing in some ways, just because it, it still maintains that opportunity for folks to continuously enroll in those safe practices that are, like in Minnesota, tailored to the back 40 pheasant, you know? So um, there are there are some opportunities yet, even though we're, we're just a little under, we, we're close. And one thing that I want to underscore, like, you know, CRP was sort of one thing for a long time. Now I've explained three different components of it. And we haven't even talked about the North American Grasslands Act, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Like, you know, we touched on legacy amendment and CREPS and, and RIMS. My point is to get back to those heydays isn't going to be the same recipe that it was like general CRP. It's going to be Swiss Army Knife of Conservation Programs that, and we're using all sorts of levers to push for different tools because you think about the demand for water quality and water quantity all over the country upland habitat helps protect water quality and water quantity removal of tree um, eastern red cedars right pollinators you see us celebrate pollinator habitat and the food supply pollinator habitat is brood cover Mm -hmm. right climate resiliency what sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere? Grass roots that pull carbon out of the atmosphere, put it into the soil. Soil health. What's good for soil? Grasses that pull, right, hold soil into the ground and prevent erosion. My point is, we're, we've evolved where, you know, obviously our goal is to create habitat for pheasants and quail, but we're using all sorts of different means, sustainability, biodiversity, to show that in the web of life, grassland habitat can do all of these environmental services. Yep. Um, what do you need to accomplish? We can help you 
with it's like pheasants forever is maslow's hierarchy of needs for, right for right. the world really well and i think anybody listening right now they know it we've preached habitat and preach it and preach it and understanding why it's important for the quality of life beyond our desire to go hunt pheasants um you know but it's it's not you're not you don't have to convince me probably don't have to convince most of the people listening how do we have that bigger effect on the people that are not listening right now that are you know, choosing to do what they want to do with their own land and altering the landscape because of it. Um, I think big picture, you know, since you guys have started working here and in my time here, um, you know, the, the decline in habitat was so drastic for such a long time. Has it stabilized? Mm. Or, you know, I mean, how it wasn't that long ago where you drive across a prairie in one of the Dakotas and just see a black cloud in the sky and it's like there goes another mm-hmm. field you know mm-hmm. they're burning and they're going to till that one up too I mean it like 2008 2009 2010 like it was so heartbreaking to drive across there have we stabilized where we're not losing prairies and wetlands or are we still losing them at a rate today that people just need to get pissed about I think get pissed <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. that, that works. Like, I get I get sad, and then I get mad when I see it. I'm like, yeah. I get that you get to choose what you want to do with your land, but my gosh, you're only here for a little bit. Somebody else is going to be there next, and what are you leaving behind? And what's what's needed versus what you want? Yeah, I mean, we, we're apathetic by nature to, to some extent. So, yeah, get pissed. Like, it's it's disappearing, and it's... You know, I don't want to leave um, conversation without providing hope, right there. Yeah, it, I didn't mean to go down this hole, no, here, Bob. A, I, well, yeah, I, I brought up a moment ago the Legacy Amendment to Minnesota. I think that's a crown jewel of con- conservation that should be used as an example all over the country, as a landscape level approach to creating habitat, protecting water, soil. Um, and creating access for human beings to enjoy Mother Nature. Some things don't have to be developed with concrete or whatever. They, they should be natural. That's okay. Right. Um, so I, I think that there are some models out there that we should all be rallying towards and bring from one place. Um, Nebraska has open fields and, and, and waters program, their, their walk-in access program, which I think is the crown jewel of walk-in programs. I think that other states can learn from adopting some of the things that they've done with that. You know, we, NACA, if you look at the bird report, you know, all different types of birds are declining with the exception of wetland birds, right? And you can attribute a lot of that to North American Wetlands Conservation Act, NACA dollars helping protect wetlands, which is why we're trying to get a Grasslands <laughs> Act, because right. the biggest dropping bird grouping of birds are grasslands birds. Yeah. We did an interview with the guy uh, last summer around this time, and the goal was to go out and find meadowlarks with him and tell the story of the meadowlark for our TV show, Minnesota Bound. It was Western Minnesota, and he had to find an area, and the guy said something, and I mentioned this, I believe, to Marilyn Vetter when she was in here and we were talking. His struggle is that he needs people to care about this bird, but why should they care when they know nothing about Mm. it? Because they don't see it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not there for them. You know, the next generation has no idea what a metal lark is, Mm -hmm. which is sad. 
Mm-hmm. But in order to care about it, you got to know what it is to begin with. You know, so I think that's why a lot of upland hunters care so deeply about the land is because we're out there and, and it matters. And for more people to care, they have to be out there to experience it. They have to see it. And that can help move the needle a little bit too. So um, we'll leave it on a good note. There are a lot of birds out there, guys. <laughs> and, and I didn't mean to get really down the, the hole here, but we, I'm, I'm just fascinated to pick your brain all the time. And I know we could talk for five more hours. We actually are going to talk a little bit more off the record here because we're going to talk about a film festival. (laughs) (laughs) And there's another PF employee waiting outside right now. And so we're working on things with you guys that uh, hopefully our listeners and viewers will enjoy as well. Um, And I think we'll leave it at that. Our episode together, Bob, is coming up in two weeks depending on when brandon gets back into town to publish this it might be a week and a half i don't know or a week and uh for folks that are listening they can bounce and watch the television show which we just did together which should be airing around this time too yeah uh trampled by birds yeah and um we didn't say trampled by pheasants because we hunted such a variety of birds we we did we did we um, but we do have different membership offers going on right now. Pheasantsforever.org slash trampled mm-hmm. or quailforever.org slash trampled, which is a collaboration with uh, the band Trampled by Turtles. And uh, their lead singer, Dave Simonette, featured on this episode of The Flush, um, has become a, just a, a great friend of the organization and um, really, you know, he inc- contributes the opener to a, our podcast. Yeah, it's great. I love it. And the trampled by pheasant, they don't get any royalties. Like, no, man, if you can generate members out of this, yep. go for it. So it's a really cool shirt that comes with a membership. And um, if you're listening and yeah, maybe are delinquent and getting involved, uh, we invite you to join us. Yeah, it's a great way to get involved there. And your your membership matters out there. Um, anything coming up be- besides that on your show that you're excited about, you're looking forward to? Um, our next episode is about um, a brand new uh, educational video series about learning how to hunt upland birds. So I, on the surface, it's a, uh, this how to hunt upland birds. It's, you'd think it's for novices. But it was, it's actually like how to, which is definitely works for novices, but there's an episode about, um, or a series, educational series about hunting valley quail in California. So if you've never done that, yeah. it's like, whoa, okay. See what it's a, all about. See how, what it's all about. If you never hunted rough grouse, there's a um, series about hunting rough grouse in Maine. Um, you know, Bob White quail with Durrell um, down in, I think that was filmed Alabama. in Georgia. Um, it might have been Alabama. I was thinking it was filmed in Georgia. Oh, okay. Um, but anyways, it's, it's, I think, six different species of birds, six different locations, six different teachers. So Very cool. that's the next episode. Awesome. Aaron, what are you excited about? Getting back out into the field or catching a walleye? Both. Yeah. Both, <laughs> absolutely. Go. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for coming in today. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. Mm-hmm.